Hello, and welcome to Entangled, the podcast where we explore the science of consciousness, the true nature of reality, and what it means to be a spiritual being having a human experience. I'm your host, Jordan Euclid, and today I'm joined by one of my oldest friends, John Monick. In this episode, we discuss the concept of time, including the rigid structure of time in seconds and minutes, how your experience of time can be much less rigid, and whether time travel is possible. From there, we discuss John's love for history and why the ideas of archaeology-focused investigative journalist Graham Hancock have resonated with so many people. Next, we discuss the leader Genghis Khan and the Anglo-centric perception of history as taught by American institutions. Then we discuss the fascinating geography of caves and whether an ancient civilization could have waited out a cataclysmic event at the beginning of the Younger Dryas period living in caves. We then discuss the ideas of luck and coincidence and whether they can be reduced to a function of randomness or could instead represent manifestations of an intelligent plan. We end the conversation talking about animal sentience and whether under different circumstances another species could have evolved to the level of intellectual advancement of humankind today. I also wanted to highlight that John and I, both Cincinnati natives, recorded this episode a few days before the Bengals won the AFC Championship, and I'm recording this intro the day after we lost the Super Bowl. And even though the guys didn't come away with the win, we couldn't be prouder of what this team did and how resoundingly they shocked the nation this season. Even more importantly, John and I were able to get back to Cincinnati to watch the game, and the energy and spirit we witnessed was absolutely electric. Something I haven't seen before in Cincinnati, something that was truly inspirational. And as I think about the power of community, spirit, and empowerment, these concepts extend far beyond the world of sports. I've been thinking about the Ukraine crisis quite a bit recently, and reflecting on a piece Yuval Harari wrote for The Economist last week, arguing that what's at stake in Ukraine is the direction of human history. He questions whether change is possible, and if humans have the capability to avoid letting history repeat itself endlessly. So as the dominoes continue to align toward the potential World War III, I remain convinced that the ability for humans to change is one of the fundamental truths of this world, but that we can't rely on governments or the military intelligence industrial complexes behind those governments to avoid war. Because to those who only view others as potential threats, they'll continue to find those threats. Said another way, to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And if we the people want to avoid what would likely be the most destructive armed conflict we've ever seen, it's incumbent on we the people to demand it. We the American people, we the Russian people, we the Ukrainian people, and we the people of nations all across the globe. This type of change certainly won't come easy, but it's nonetheless an endeavor worth fighting for. As Margaret Mead said, Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. With that, please enjoy the episode. Today, I've got with me one of my oldest and dearest friends, the one and only John Monick. John, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing very well, Jordan. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, Long-time listener, first-time caller. Excited to be here. I love it, man. I'm super excited to have you on. I definitely enjoyed listening to your Jungle podcast when you and Jeff were running that a year or so ago. So excited to have you on now for, for my podcast. Absolutely, man. Like I said, been, been listening to a few episodes and uh, glad that I got the invite. So ready to see how we get entangled here. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Maybe to kick things off for the listeners benefit. You know, it was, it was really exciting for me to meet John back in sixth grade. 
one day my mom showed up with John actually in the backseat of her car because he had just moved to Cincinnati from the UK and got connected to my mom who was teaching at the high school at the time. And that really started a friendship that day that's never ended. And so with that, John, maybe you could tell the folks a little bit about yourself and what that transition was like coming back to Cincinnati from the UK. Well, I guess, yeah. So for that, uh, I guess on your perspective, Jordan, it all started when you saw me in the back of the car, even leading into that though. So I'm sure the people who know me know this, but I actually lived in a different part of Cincinnati prior to uh, really up until seven years old. So I guess that was second grade. And then when we went to London for four years and then, you know, naturally coming back to the States, my parents were looking in, in a different part of town. So from my experience, I was actually really against it. I wanted to go back to my old group of friends. And I remember the first day driving around to Wyoming, just literally crying in the back seat the whole time because I didn't want to move to this new foreign territory. And uh, I think we had done a tour of the high school because my sister was just getting ready for her freshman year of high school. And while we were there, we were touring the building, ran into the arts teacher who happened to be your mom. I mean, I think you know, one thing led to another as moms do, found out they had uh, children around the same age. And that is initially how I actually got the invite to go meet this new guy named Jordan and all, all his little buddies. So I got stacked in the car, maybe a little uh, anxious and nervous, but I think we played some wall ball that day. And yeah, man, the rest is history. Good person to get to know initially. Obviously, Jordan, you're a pretty social guy. So it was just an easy way to kind of get plugged into the friends group and still a lot of the same buddies that we always keep in touch with today. Yeah, man, it was, it was pretty seamless. It was, it was easy. And it's amazing that, you know, all these years later, everyone is, is still good friends. I think that's pretty unique as far as groups of friends go from childhood. Yeah, it really is. And it's funny that that they kicked off what became several years of our friend group just terrorizing the streets of Riley and London. <laughs> And we then, were we were definitely a little terrorists. Sure. <laughs> yeah, some of those prank phone calls could have made it on that Comedy Central show, Crank Anchors. Crank Anchors, that's right. You know, it's funny too, John, just in the years that have ensued, how much, how many similarities our lives have really taken, right? You know, not, not even just that. We both had a parent who worked for Procter & Gamble growing up, went to Wyoming High School, went to Indiana for college. Both lived in Chicago for several years where we became even better friends. So it's really been cool just to see you and uh, our journeys continue to evolve on this path over the last 20 years or so. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we went to college together, high school, obviously, then college together. Chicago, pretty soon out the gate. Had a couple of escapades in Boston uh, while you were out in Connecticut. <laughs> and then even more so, like after that, you know, they were about, about a five-year span where I think you had moved on to Denver and I can't even remember. Were you in San Francisco immediately before Denver? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, you were. But no, then, you know, especially recently, I think it started hanging out even more so. So, yeah, certain parallels, but also had our own journeys and similar interests. And it is interesting how you grow in your own silo, for lack of a better term. But at the same time, we've kept a lot of similar interests, which I think is why we continue to be such good friends. Totally. And so you moved to Austin a few years ago now from Chicago and would love to just hear what that transition has been like and what you think about Austin as a whole. I uh, love Austin. Everything about it is awesome except for I wish I had a baseball team. That's literally like it's the only negative. So yeah, that was March 2019. So moved here, knew one person. I was wanting to get out of Chicago just because it was so cold and I came down here once and it kind of had, it checked all the boxes, good market for software sales, which is what I do. 
warm weather. And I just always wanted to live in a warm weather place. And it's just a really cool city. I know you've been here. It's, it's an easy place to fall in love with. First year was definitely hard. You've done it. You've moved to a place with limited network and just turned 30. It's a little daunting. First six months were tough, man. I mean, it's easy to hang out with the same people over and over again, but it's also hard when you're doing that to find your own path and find your own <laughs> friends. And then, you know, luckily I had some good friends start work or people that would soon to be good friends that fall. So I'd say like the first spring and summer, a little challenging just from a social perspective, but some new folks started at work that I, I felt like I, I really clicked with a lot better. I met Dustin. He's one of them. And just kind of evolved naturally, man. I feel like I was robbed because obviously 2020 was a wash and things were so strange. You couldn't go out. You couldn't socialize. But, you know, looking at it almost three years later now, really, really happy with the change. Bought a condo here. have a good group of friends here. I've always obviously kept all the, the same friends I had leading into it. But especially like my buddies from Chicago, when people ask, like, well, are you glad you did it? I encourage people just to take the chance, man. It's like worst case scenario. You just go back to where you were. You don't really have anything to lose. You know, it might be tough here and there. But all in all, it's a net win. And I've been really, honestly, happy with the change. And I've noticed that, too, as you talk about establishing social networks as you get older. It just does seem inherently to get more challenging the older you get to make those new friend groups. I'm curious if, if you'd agree with that or what you'd attribute it to. 100%. It's because people already have their circle. And I'm not 22. I can't go out every single night anymore. Like, I don't even, it's not as appealing as an idea. And I try to put myself in other people's shoes. Like, okay, if I'm 32 and I have my group of friends, I'm a lot, for better or for worse, maybe a lot less willing to go out and and try to be like the olive branch of somebody new in the group, just because you kind of already have your group of friends. And I think as you get older, naturally, most people tend to, your group tends to get a little bit smaller. You know, when I look at it now versus 2011 coming out of college, when it seems like, you know, everybody in the world, you really are a little bit more selective with how you spend your time. And I think you have naturally, as your career progresses, less free time, which sure. certainly plays a part in that as well. Yeah, absolutely. And then I think as you get to our age, your friends start to settle down and have kids, which obviously also is a big limiting factor in terms of how you know, how much free time you have to get together with friends. Yeah, well, you've got a, a small being whose entire life is basically being held up by you. I think priorities tend to shift naturally. So <laughs> yeah. If that's not happening, there, there may be uh, maybe not a, a happy family situation there. That's a whole other, whole other tangent. Well, let's go down that tangent. I mean, what are your thoughts on having a family one day and having kids? Is that what you want or where do you stand on that front? Personally, yeah, I'd love one, man. You know, I think that's something that everyone thinks about. I've always wanted a family. I've always wanted some kids. You know, the whole nuclear family is is scary in an aspect, but also really attractive in other aspects. Like I want, I want a little John Monick running around out there at some Uh point. But also it's like, oh yeah, he's probably going to terrorize me more than anyone. (laughs) That'll that'll be welcome. No, I think, you know, it obviously there's some trade-offs with that similar to yourself, like I have a certain wanderlust, you know, I always want to see and experience new things and having the timing where, you know, once you have a child, you really can't do that at least for, let's say three to five years at at a minimum. Mm -hmm. And obviously they take a lot of expensive 
having a raised kid and that's naturally going to have you, you know, have less funds to devote to travel. So I think kind of timing that up is important because I, I don't want to end up in the situation where I still have boxes I want to check, but I don't have like the time to do so. I think that'd be an unhealthy conflict or just an unhealthy uh, conflict of interest between family uh-huh. and fun. So I think, you know, that's certainly an important aspect to it. But as far as like what I want in 10 years, certainly want to have that nuclear family. How about yourself? That makes sense. Do you? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, I, I always definitely thought I wanted one and I think I still do for sure. But I don't know. I also think about as my perspective on death and the soul and life has changed a sense of the weight of having kids has lifted in the sense that like I used to feel this is your only life you have to you know pass on your genes and continue your lineage but now that I've started to view my soul as more of this eternal presence that will likely manifest in some consciousness in some other form in the future like I I don't feel necessarily that I need to pass on my genes in that sense and I, I look at folks like, you know, Nikola Tesla or whatever, who had these just crazy idiosyncratic lives, but just really got to do some wild stuff because of that. And to your point, you know, obviously the time element of having kids is the biggest factor that I really think about because there is a lot that I still want to do. So I don't know. I, I think long story short to answer your question in, in way too many words. Yes, I generally think so, but I'm less set on that path than I think I would have been if you'd asked me that a year or two ago. Yeah. And I think it's one of those things that obviously changes as you get older and your thoughts change and your values change and you evolve. One beautiful thing about being where we are in the path of history right now is you don't have such an urgency that maybe our parents' generation or especially our grandparents' generation had, right? Mm-hmm. You know, there's things that you can do to to delay having a biological child. And then, again, if, if that's not in the cards or what you want to do, not necessarily not in the cards, but not what you wish at the time. So we're also in a time where that's not a big, as big a deal. We take that for granted for sure. Like I know I get pressure from my mom, but I'm sure it's nothing oh, yeah. what it would have been like 80 years ago. They were all having kids at 20 and that was just, just how it was. We definitely have a, a we're afforded a bit of flexibility that I think is unique to, to our generation. I agree. It is unique to our generation. And I I have to acknowledge that we also are in the position of being males. So I think that biological clock is a little bit less of a pressure for us. It is for for females, but still, yeah, a little bit more of an evolved society today. hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, what's the, what are they projecting? Our age group lives to like a hundred, something ridiculous like that. That's wild. I was thinking about that. I was speaking with a financial advisor the other day, and that was one of the things they, they had mentioned. I was like, that's a lot of saving. That's a lot of saving. I don't know. I don't even know if I'd want to live to 100. Would you? I think it depends on the quality of my health overall. Right. But unless like they're shooting you up with, like I don't know, testosterone therapy or something, like, yeah. you're still an old, real old body by that point. For sure. Like, is that even, at the same time, right? I mean, it's, it's going to be 2090 by the time we're hundred, right? So like who the hell knows what type of advancements they'll come up with in the meantime. I'll have your head in a little jar <laughs> around. <laughs> like uh, Futurama, you ever watch that show? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Unlike uh one of those overhead projector carts, maybe. Yeah. 
But it is wild to think about, right? I mean, doesn't 2090 sound just so far away? It does. I remember when 2020 sounded really far away. Yeah. Like in college. I remember when I went to college in 2007, 2011, it was like, wow, we're going to graduate in 2011. And now it's like, where the hell did the time go? It's been 10 years. That's the thing, though. I think time literally flies. The older you get, the faster it goes because your perception of every year is shrinking against all the other ones you've lived. I can only imagine, like, yeah, it sounds like 2090 is like this foreign time. But I think when you get there, you look back and you're like, wow, it's not as daunting looking back as it was looking forward. It's interesting you bring up that concept of time, too, because I've noticed the exact same thing. And it really makes me reconsider the whole notion of time and just, I don't know, I think people view it so rigidly and they think about it just in terms of seconds on a clock. But to me, it's almost like experientially, what does time feel like to you? That's almost the more relevant component. Does that make sense? 100%. I mean, I, in my opinion, it's all about like, the example would be like, if you're staring at the clock, counting each second, it seems like a long time. If you're doing something really fun, time, time perception is a lot, a lot less, which is kind of interesting to me. I don't know. I think it also depends on like how productive you're being during that time. Right. Are you achieving things? I think when you're achieving things, there's at least like a marker. If you're kind of like, have you ever had a year where you look back and you're like, what did I really gain this year? That's Mm -hmm. why I think goal setting is important. It's more of a blur, especially like 2020 to me, 2020 was a blur. I sat on my ass a lot. I didn't like get a ton of work done because a lot of the time, like they didn't have anything for us to do. I didn't have a lot of cool travel opportunities. My perception of that year is a lot faster than the ones prior to it. Did you experience that? Yeah, totally. And COVID especially was just so weird for time in the sense that like when it first hit, I felt like it was dragging on forever, that every day was the same. And then to your point, like once you kind of made that adjustment, the rest of it just flew by. Right. Then the days turn into weeks and all of a sudden it's, it's, the new year it was crazy to look at yeah. a lot of boredom <laughs> just naturally because you couldn't really do much but we lived through a pandemic never thought i'd uh have that life experience yeah during the pandemic did you find out anything about yourself or explore any new interests that maybe surprised you i got back into video games honestly that's why i spent a lot of my time I think I definitely got like more lonely than I'd ever been. When you just sit in your house, I, I realized like I need human contact. Like I, I work in sales. I enjoy talking to people. Just sitting like f- forever on the couch was like horrible to me. I just found <laughs> ways like I had to get out and get about and I got into golf. It was like one of the few things you could do and go like do the shit with other people. I tried to just find more hobbies. Because frankly, there a lot of the ones I had prior, like going out and being with friends or whatever it may be, just weren't available to me. I also think I, I did learn, like, I think I deal with stress better than most people. Mm-hmm. I never felt like the world's falling or the sky's falling. Maybe I'm just a little bit more okay with risk than other people. I think also having to be in a pandemic when you're young isn't as scary as when you're old. And talk about yourself from my end, a few things. I mean, one that I got into. So, so during the pandemic, I actually read this book called flow and it's 
I think the subtitle is The Psychology of Optimal Experience. And that book was just really illuminating for me because it, it really helped to break down why you're happier when you're doing things that you know are, I'd say, good habits and, and why you're un, unhappier while you're doing things that are, are not as good of habits. So that was definitely a major contributing factor in why I stopped drinking in, at the beginning of 2021. And then also it helped me to pick back up the guitar, which I'd stopped playing like in sixth grade. Mm-hmm. That's just been so phenomenal for me because I've always just loved music so much, but just never had the technical ability to play it. And as I read that book, I was like, you know what? The only thing stopping me is myself and I feel like I'm not even enjoying music as fully as I could, despite how much I love it. And it means so much to me. And so I'd say those two things have been really, really phenomenal for me for the last year and a half or so, whatever it's been. Hey, kudos to you. Cause I remember hearing you play about, it was probably February of last year. I'm not going to sugarcoat it, Jordan. You were still finding your, your way, but uh, <laughs> uh, your performance is online recently and you've come a long way to 12 months. So big ups to you for that. That's impressive. Honestly. Thanks man. Um, I appreciate that. The music you were making when I came to ski with you in February is not what you've been putting out the uh, <laughs> six to nine months. So you, you you definitely made some serious strides, and that's a big uh, compliment to, to you and your work ethic. I appreciate that, man. Thank you. And so as you were talking about the stress factor in the pandemic, and I fully agree that, again, we have the privilege of being relatively young and healthy. So I think it was less inherently stressful because of that. Also, obviously, no kids who couldn't get vaccinated. But I, I would love to get your thoughts a little bit more on just the element of stress and our own ability to determine the amount of stress we're living with on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. I mean, I feel like as I get older, my stress only goes up. I don't know if you've experienced that, especially like at this point in life where I'm like looking at like, all right, like I need to start setting real, like my twenties, I wasn't stressed, man. You know, you're just, you live in the moment so much. But at this point now, it's like, all right, I've got a mortgage. Where do mm-hmm. I want to be in five years? Where do I want to be in 10 years? Me, personally, I'd like to have a nice house in five years. And just actually having to kind of have a sit-down conversation with yourself and think about really what you want to achieve. A, it just it makes me feel better personally. But B, it also does create a little bit more stress around it. It's like, all right, like it, it's showtime now when you're younger, I feel like you always have the excuse in in your head to be like, well, I'm still only 22. At this point, it's like, all right, like you've, you're still young, right? But you've lived your younger years. Now it's really time to make some kind of impact there. Dealing with stress, everyone can do that differently. You know, you can do it through like drinking. You can do it in more positive ways, like working out or meditation. I've never tried meditation. I know, I think you've dabbled in that a a bit. Mm Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I think it's always like, for me, I feel like it's one of those things that's cyclical. Certain periods, I'll be more stressed than others, uh-huh. whether it be like around work, like I work in sales, there's always sales stress. And just really, like I said, like what you want to achieve out of your life. And you can put that on yourself, but so a lot of that can be self-generated, putting expectations on yourself. But I think that's a much healthier stress than if you don't do that. Like maybe 2020, like I, like I said, I admittedly didn't really achieve a thing in 2020. But I think when you don't, you know, move the yard marker forward, 
that's the kind of stress you don't want because then you start to look at yourself and you're like, all right, like, what am I doing right now? You don't want to have those regrets from not taking enough action. It was interesting how in your answer, you were talking about how when you're younger, you're able to be more present and then you get older and you're more stressed about the future. And it, it relates back to this concept of time in a sense where like you hear that idea of be here now, be in the present so much now that it's almost like a cliche or a truism or whatever, but it, it really does ring true. And I'm curious to get your thoughts on why you think being in the present moment is so meaningful or, or if you would disagree with that. No, I think it's one of the most important things we, you and I were in Salt Lake or actually Park city, what a week ago this past weekend. And I don't know if you remember, we're coming down that run and it was me, you, Kurt and Graham. And I remember just saying like, wow, like, look at that view. And it was kind of one of those moments where when you're skiing, you just look downhill. And at least in my head as you know, an amateur skier, I'm like, don't fall, don't do anything stupid. <laughs> but every once in a while, it's like, you have to just stop and really look around and be like, how often do I have what looks like a painting literally right in front of me and really soak that in. I think I have those moments on like a vacation. Uh, I, or at least I try to regularly could be looking at like the stars in the sky or really just trying to like actually just enjoy the scenery. If that makes sense. And like it's most simplistic form. I think, I think really soaking that soaking moments in is something I actively try to do whenever I feel like I'm in a moment that, that needs to really be, not taken for granted. But do I do that on a daily basis? No. No, I don't. I try to be like consciously like thankful for things. And I, I probably don't do it as much as I should. But every once in a while, especially if I'm stressed, I'll be like, all right, let's list out like five really good things you got going for you right now. And you're just trying to put some more positive energy into those things. And I feel like if you do that and just kind of slow down and focus on the big picture instead of this person's not emailing me back. I need to hit X by this time. So it's a lot healthier way to live. And so then diving further into the discussion on time, do you think time travel is possible? I don't have any reason to believe it's not. I wonder how that would work. I don't think I'd want to sign up to be like one of the guinea pigs for it. <laughs> um, <laughs> why, why wouldn't it be? I don't know. I feel like, I think it's stupid to ever say something's not possible. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Totally. It's just arrogant um, in a sense, yeah. like to think that we humans know everything and have figured out all the physics of how the universe works. Yeah, I think people are a lot smarter than we think, and we're also not as smart as we think. We always have this perception that, like, oh, we're at the pinnacle of the human race right now. And this is just one little tiny blip on the, the timeline. Like who's to say what genius may have lived a thousand years ago, 20 years ago, or a hundred thousand years ago. You know, you don't really know. And also then think about the idea of like parallel realities or alternate timelines. And if someone's argument is like, well, if there was time travelers, we'd know because they would have been here but it's like maybe they have been and things are in a different reality now than they would have been but we just don't realize it because this is the only reality we've ever known right 
Yeah, maybe they already changed the course. It's like all the time travel movies. Oh, well, you stop this one seemingly insignificant event, and it obviously turns out to be a lot more significant down the road once once it's set a different set of dominoes forward. Pretty wild stuff, and it makes me think back to another guy that we're both fans of, Graham Hancock, and some of the really unique ideas he he's posed around the history of Americans or sorry, of uh, ancient civilizations and of human societies around the globe. And we'd love to get your thoughts on this is why has that been a topic area of interest to you? Naturally, I'm just a history buff as it comes. Like I love history and geography. Those are just been two of the, I'd say the most interesting topics to me of anything. And it's always been an, an interest to me. Like I remember being a kid in England and just staring at the globe and like memorizing it and like reading like some kind of like dark history books. It was gross stuff in the middle ages, like kind of stuff that's more geared towards children. But I've just always been fascinated with that. And I still like every day I'm reading or watching something on some weird little history. Yesterday I was looking up Kurdistan and like the strange little like enclaves within Kurdistan. Don't ask me. <laughs> I got on a tangent. But with that being said, like the Graham Hancock stuff, obviously was exposed to him through Joe Rogan. I mean, what's not fascinating about that stuff? It's like he's got seemingly pretty hard evidence that basically is contrary to everything else that you've been talking. And it's interesting to see, man. You know, yeah. I'm sure we've, you've watched and consumed even more than I have. But to me, it's, it's eye-opening. And it also kind of goes in line with we think we have it figured out, but it's, it's like, who's to say we don't? And, and all those examples of like throughout time, like the lost library of Alexandria, like in Egypt, what kind of stuff do they have that you just don't know about? I just think there's so much lost information throughout time. All we know is basically based off what we can, what we have right now. Right. I think the, the earliest Maybe authors of that was, you know, were like Plato or Socrates or these like old scribes. And we only like those guys only live what, like 4,000 years ago, max, 2,000, 3,000. Point being, it's a real small snippet of time. And I just think it's really interesting that there's so much more knowledge and so much more runway that we didn't have leading up to it that's unknown. And Graham at least picks a little piece of it apart. I couldn't agree more. And even as you think about the limited time frame of ancient wisdom that we're able to pull upon, even that I feel like is very cherry picked in a sense that like it, it still is very Anglo dominant, right? Like I feel like the Greek philosophies are very well known in the Western world, but much less so are the Indian and Vedic philosophies, the ancient Egyptian philosophies, the Mayan cultures, these groups that had seemingly incredibly profound wisdom on all sorts of things around the physics of the universe that haven't been as fully appreciated in the, the lexicon of modern philosophy and archaeology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's just less written works to go off of, right? Yeah. Like part of the Rosetta stone, which was found what, like a hundred years ago, we couldn't even read the hieroglyphs. There's just so much. I, I really think like the whole, it's the tip of the iceberg to use that uh, metaphor, but it really is. It's like we scratched the surface. The cool thing to me is like, I think we're living in the most 
exciting archaeological time ever because we have like this technology now that can see through the rainforest, see through vegetation, which has historically been really what hides things. You know, it, it takes it out of plain view. I think over the next 30 years, especially as like more of this gets excavated, like there's only, it's only going to continue to rewrite what our understanding is of human civilization. Totally. That's really exciting to me. That's like really in, I think like in, in Mexico, there's like hundreds of these structures that they found now that are all hidden. And all this stuff they're finding with LIDAR in the Brazilian rainforest. It's crazy. It's crazy. Tegupli Tepe. Am I saying that right? The Blacky Tepe, I think. The Blacky Tepe, yeah. Pardon my ancient Turkish pronunciation. But <laughs> I know they've barely scrapped. Like, they've got tons of that site. It's like 10% is excavated. The vast majority of that is still underground. And like, who knows what's down there? Maybe there's some weird old Rosetta stone with ancient Phoenician or, you know what I mean? Like, you don't really know. That's why I think we're, we're in a really exciting time for this stuff. And then Graham Hancock is kind of like the um, look down upon historian who may end up being the one that uh, is, is more well-known even than a thousand years. He may be highly regarded as, mm-hmm. as this revolutionary of his time, which I, I think he, he most likely will be because no one else is really leading the charge on this stuff. I totally agree. And for folks who may not be as familiar with Graham Hancock, could you just give a little background on who, who he is and what his, how, how his views differ from traditional archaeology? Yeah, so Graham Hancock is a British historian, archaeologist. Is he an archaeologist, I guess, officially? I think he's more of an author and a historian. Yeah, I think he'd be more uh, considered like, like an one. investigative journalist who focuses on archaeology, but it's kind of an arbitrary distinction, if you ask me. Well said. But yeah, he basically has really just delved into ancient history and taken certain observations, whether it be like the Sphinx is the one that first came to my, made me aware of him. So like the Sphinx was basically covered all the way up a hundred years ago by sand in the desert and in the Sahara. And then once the, this place the late 1800s would be a little bit more accurate. Once they started realizing like, oh, like there's some really cool stuff hidden under here. Let's excavate this. And then tourists might come and it's a whole, the, the interest in it kind of peaked. And then once they kept digging and digging, they see, okay, all this erosion is made from sand. But after a certain point, the erosion clearly changes to made by water. And then they start looking at, okay, well, this has got to be way older than the pyramids because the pyramids we know are 4,000 years old. But the... Sahara wasn't like a lush rainforest was what it used to be until like that changed like 12,000 years ago. So it starts suggesting that these old artifacts are a hell of a lot older than we thought. And that's just like one example, right? I mean, I know he also does a lot with like the pyramid structures that are in different areas of the world. And, you know, how can they all be using similar alignments with the stars, but these cultures were so far apart from each other yeah he just opens a lot of cans of worms on like what the hell was going on here (laughs) you know before quote-unquote history we know it as that's like my my quick version of who graham hancock is yeah that's great and i mean for me just said simply he's just a real life indiana jones this guy's life and the stories he tells are just absolutely unbelievable for example he wrote a book called supernatural all about just the history of the rainforest and 
ayahuasca ceremonies. And I think he did over 70 ceremonies just for that book alone. So it just gives you an idea of how non-traditional this guy is, but just the ability to connect different mythologies and to really think outside the box from what in archaeology specifically, but in my view, science more generally is just a, a historically very closed-minded. I can't accept this concept that there could have ever been something before because it refutes the theory that I proposed, right? This is kind of like stalemate gridlock of an of a uh, scientific field of inquiry that he's able to come in and just throw a hand grenade in the whole thing and say, hey, guys, you're missing the whole bigger picture. Which is why he's been shunned and discredited. And yeah. he's, he's a crazy person. Mainstream science is threatened by it just because these people devote their entire lives to a certain field. And then this guy kind of shatters their understanding of what the timeline is. So it yeah. kind of refutes all their work, which I understand, but it's also a shame. I don't know though. I'm, I'm optimistic. I think we're not the only two people who find it interesting. And I'm sure there's people in colleges and universities across the country and world who are on that same investigative path. At least I, I hope so, but I'd be shocked if that weren't the case. I think it totally is. Right. I mean, even just thinking about how much of an influence he's had with Rogan and I listened to his most recent episode on Rogan and he was talking about how at his events, you'll typically see, you know, an older crowd, the folks who've been following his work for 30 years, but then the vast majority is now this young crowd, typically our age, predominantly male, but a lot of folks who have found him through Rogan's podcast. And, you know, I think it just shows that people do have this inherent nature for truth. They do recognize that the quote unquote authorities don't have all the answers and oftentimes can get in their own way much more than they help the advancement of scientific inquiry. And to me, it actually has a lot of parallels with the interest in extraterrestrials and some of the, the some of the folks that Rogan's brought on, like Bob Lazar, and with regards to that that topic, and those just being so fascinating to people these days too. Absolutely, I think it's a, it's a certain maybe like historical renaissance that we're in right now. It's cool, man. It's a fun time to be alive. It is. It's certainly interesting. I just wish we had more of it. It's also interesting. It's it's cool that we're like you said, like we're young right now. I think we'll be able to see a lot of the cool stuff, a lot of interesting developments over the next 40, 50 years. It'd be awesome if they accelerated this, some of the archaeological developments a little bit faster. Yeah. There's just so much stuff out there that's like, where do you start at this point? They've uncovered so many different pieces. It's almost like overwhelming. It, it uh, is, and yet on the same note, I've seen a stat that something like only one percent they estimate of ancient artifacts and, and knowledge and like literature has been recovered. And I'm sure a lot of that's just been destroyed or never made it through the test of time. But a lot of it's probably just either under the ground or who knows. I uh, there's this guy on YouTube. He's a Roman historian. It's called Told in Stone. If you're like a any kind of like Roman history buff, you probably mm-hmm. love him. But it's interesting, like a lot of the cool, a lot of really cool old Roman artifacts and buildings and structures, they were brought down in like the Middle Ages because people just needed stone. I think that happens. Stuff either gets destroyed by like weather or like crazy event, a flood, or just the people around that, you know, around those structures just need the building materials and times aren't as good. And there's a lot of, a lot of things working against it, but. 
that's why I feel like some of the stuff that's like buried that's not already like visible is really where a lot of the, the cool stuff lies. And yeah, I mean, I there's we're living on the same ground in a lot of areas that we've been living on for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And so mm-hmm. a lot of stuff's going to be naturally buried. And it doesn't surprise me that you say less than 1% because people have been around for a long time. And I don't think they were always just building with wood. Yeah. They weren't stupid. Well, and as you talk about, you know, the need for more digging and that kind of thing, one one idea I've been noodling over the last couple of weeks is, is there a way to crowdfund archaeological digs, right? Like there are some, and LIDAR resources and that kind of thing for like places like the rainforest, right? Like th- I think there's some really interesting places that haven't re- been explored at all, places like the Saharan Desert, which while it's desert today in Ancient era and older times was, you know, a tropical and I believe like a very fertile area that probably was a breeding ground for people. And there's this Rick art structure that looks really interesting. You know, Antarctica, there's really been almost no work done. There's a lot of like shelving that could have been, that used to be like really high prime real beachfront real estate during the last ice age that's now underwater. Like, I think these are all really interesting places. So I don't know if if you got, if you can help me think of a way to like crowdfund an archaeological dig, I think that could be super awesome thing to do. Isn't there some interesting shelving in the Pacific Northwest? There's a Graham Hancock piece on that. I don't know. I think your biggest issue is going to be government. <laughs> That's the, uh, whether or not they allow large scale archaeological digs were, which is, you know, if you're digging on like in or near a coast right now, those are probably pretty high desirable areas to live, mm. um, which is an inherent problem. I don't know. The Sahara's the Sahara and basically the, the new world jungle ones in Mexico and Central America and the mm. Amazon. Those are the ones that are most interesting to me right now, just because they aren't currently high density, high density population areas. I think it's just easier. Whereas like, let's say like Israel, for instance, right? Like mm-hmm. people have been there forever. I think it's just harder when you've got all these layers of living. And I think people destroy things to make, make new things, which is another issue. No, the places to me that are much interesting are the ones that are like barren right now, because I think they're more accessible. And you can actually, there's less layers of stuff on top of old, old, cool stuff in very simple terms yeah (laughs) (laughs) what is it about history in particular that you found so fascinating just kind of putting yourselves in other people's shoes so like wondering just what it would have been like i don't know i think it also kind of gets down to like human nature people are pretty like vicious animals like inherently just caring about the stuff that people used to to deal with it's fascinating to think about, but it must have been terrifying to live through. It's that kind of stuff. And then trying to understand like what it might have been like for a regular person living their monotonous life, but mm-hmm. in this time period. That type of stuff's really interesting to me. Like what was their what were their daily stressors? What was a day like? What was their perception of their life? I'm sure it was a lot smaller, hopefully or it must have been smaller. Because they didn't have access to all this information. You know, they kind of assumed what they're told yeah. is correct. Because why, why would you question it, right? I don't know. That's a good question. I, don't, I never really thought about that. Why do yeah. I love history? I just do. I think I'm just predisposed to. 
hate math and science, Jordan. So we got to do, got to devote this big brain of mine to something. <laughs> I don't know, man. That's a good question. Is there a like particular period of time that's most interesting to you? Yeah. The change is constantly, honestly. The Roman period has been really interesting to me lately, but then I'll go through other phases where it could be more recent. But then I guess as, as, I, as I was a kid, it was always more recent stuff, like World War II, World War One, like the Civil War. As I get older, I feel like I, my interest keeps getting moved back and further back in time. Because then you're like, well, how did it get to that point? Uh-huh. Or like you'll have like this big blind spot. So like uh, you've heard the Dan Carlin hardcore history stuff, I assume. Yeah. I think you sent me his podcast before. Yeah. I mean, his, his thing on the, on the Mongols, because, you know, like you said, like Anglo history is what we grew up in and mainly Anglo society in America founded by sense of the, the British. So that's just kind of like naturally how you're going to be taught. But then it's like, well, what, what was happening during this time period? You know, it's kind of like, they teach you like Roman history and then all of a sudden it's like the middle ages and <laughs> all of a sudden they find North America. Like that's kind of how like those little <laughs> yeah. events, but it's like, well, what the hell is happening? Like there's 600 years in between. Yeah. And like, okay, so this is what was happening in England. What the hell was happening in the steppes of Asia? The Mongol stuff's super interesting. And also seeing how the ebb and flow of society is the ancient Chinese culture is like super interesting to me too that's a hard one to put your finger on because it's so long and it's constantly changing i don't know man i, I don't really think i have a like, one specific it just my favorite time changes all the time mm-hmm. central asia right now is super interesting to me just because i feel like that's the area that i know the least amount about sure well, and it's interesting too, given modern events with the tensions with Ukraine and Russia. I'm, I'm sure that kind of adds some spice to the mix as well. Yeah, Urban, like, where did those people come from before they settled there? Because, the, like, what we think of as of as a person who lives in Kyrgyzstan wasn't the same like ethnic group that would have been there two thousand years ago necessarily especially like on the steps, like they're constantly taking, the dominant group is constantly changing. That's just another little interesting caveat that I like to think about. Is there a particular leader that's of interest to you today? Not one that really sticks out to me, to be honest, like off the top of my head, like it's easy to say Genghis Khan. I, you know, I don't know anything about Genghis Khan. Like I, I feel like what I, all I know is probably just, stereotypes so what what is it about him that you think is interesting yeah he basically was born the son of uh, like a simple like little chief so basically the mongols were just like nomadic herds herdsmen lived off their animals were very fragmented and he was the first one to really like unite all the mongols into one great army so it's just like he went from humble beginnings like as humble as it gets essentially to the most powerful man on earth with like the largest swath of territory ever assembled. Yeah, Do you he, have a sense of like China to, territory is today? Like what, what that landmass looks like? Yeah. I mean, it was literally from China to Hungary. The only thing that stopped them from taking over Europe was Genghis Khan died. And so all of huh. his sons had to go back to Mongolia. So they had to figure out like, who's going to be the leader. 
they were like ready to take over. They were in Hungary, ready to roll. They just defeated the Russians or the Rus at the time, but they had an emergency. And that was literally what saved Europe. That's crazy. What time period would this have been? I want to say like mid 1200s, maybe, maybe 1100s. So like in Europe, it's still like the dark ages, right? At the time or what you call the dark ages, just fragmented, smaller countries, no real like big power at that time. It was hard times, right? It was like the end of, in between like the end of the Romans and the emergence of like these bigger kingdoms in the middle ages is kind of a, you had a lot of plagues, a lot of things that were just making it harder for one power to emerge. You should check out Dan Carlin. Those are some fascinating podcasts. Yeah, I will. And what about that stat you've probably heard before that like some crazy percentage of the world's population has Genghis Khan's DNA and that like he was known for just being very brutal with women and raping them. Like, is there any truth to that? I just Googled it. According to National Geographic, Jordan, 0.5% of the world male population carries Mongol Empire Y chromosomes that are nearly identical. Genghis Khan is widely viewed as the, the only possible person that could have spread this. That equates to 16 million living descendants today. That's crazy. But to me, that doesn't even seem like it couldn't have just been Genghis Khan. Like, doesn't it make more sense that it'd be like Genghis Khan and his armies? I'm not a specialist on like, you know, how <laughs> DNA carries from generation to generation. But yeah. I mean, think about it, dude. It's, I'm not even thinking about it from that standpoint, though. I'm just thinking of like how, you're Genghis Khan, how many women in a day could you physically? I don't know. What's the one with like, uh, doesn't Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, you said he slept with like some absurd amount of women or like Wilt Chamberlain. Have you ever heard that? Yeah, I think I have heard that. It's like something like thousands. I don't know. Genghis Khan probably had like a huge... <laughs> Uh, he's probably just bringing all the all the women he wanted from his world. It wasn't the, the world we live in today. People did yeah. stuff like that. Yeah, I just looked it up. Well, Chamberlain reported twenty thousand sexual liaisons, and that's that's like in our lifetime, right? Now, put yourself in control of Asia. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's crazy. It is. It is. He's a fascinating world leader. Then, yeah, he dies. His sons all had their own conates, like the gold conate or the I don't know they were all like different colors they basically uh, split it up into quads and then you know that lasts for like another 100 years and they kind of fizzled out interesting other groups like the Persians and other armies just started getting more powerful and kind of mm-hmm. taking some some of their land back yeah he's he's brutal he was like if you defied him he's like killing everyone in the city and burning it wow he rolled with a an iron fist for sure so shifting gears a little bit, what do you think about caves? Caves are fascinating. You know, it's really fascinating. Have you ever Googled cave art? No. A lot of this stuff is in like Southern France. These are like Neolithic. So they're finding cave art and it's like pretty good looking art. I think like an artist today would do this work 30,000 to 33,000 years ago. And it's like of all the animals that were in those areas. And it's like scenes of like hunting and they're like rhinos in Southern France. Caves in a general sense, obviously have been lived in for a long time, but I think like getting back to like archeology span are some of the most like fascinating places. 
a lot of them haven't changed for a long time. And it was a natural place that you'd want to go and live. And there's not a lot of things inside of them that change because the weather doesn't really affect them as much unless they get flooded. Have you ever been to Mammoth Cave? You know, I haven't. I'd love to go. Have you? I haven't either. It's the world's longest known cave system. It's funny that we're talking about caves too, because one idea I'd heard earlier. So, so I think part of what Graham Hancock's life's work has been theorizing is that there was actually this ancient civilization, potentially Atlantis, that was a seafaring people that was very technologically advanced during the last ice age. And that when some cataclysm hit that caused the ice age, or sorry, that caused the end of the ice age, most likely some fragments of a comet, at least that's what Graham Hancock thinks. One theory I've heard is that the the survivors of that civilization that then his theory is that went out to hunter gatherer civilizations all around the world and taught them some of their secrets and knowledge so that it wouldn't be lost forever. But anyway, one theory I've heard is that that group of people could have gone underground and lived in caves to wait out this cataclysm period, which lasted about 21 years. That's a long time, man. Think about that. It is, but if you, I mean, I'm not why, saying you're wrong. I'm you, saying like, how else would you survive it? Yeah. Yeah. I and mean, you'd have to be feeding on game. I don't think it'd be very easy to grow things in those conditions. It'd be a lot colder, right? Yeah. Well, that was what I was going to ask you. I mean, can food grow in caves? Like I'd imagine it has to be able to, right? I think it all depends on what the cave ecosystem is like. I mean, you need light to grow things normally. What about mushrooms? I don't know. I'm just thinking fungi versus vegetables. I don't know if I've never seen anything. In a, like I went caving as a kid. I didn't see anything other than like bugs. Spiders, but I mean, bats, bats live down there. Yeah. I mean, so there's got to be something yeah. to the lowest form there. I mean, even bugs, like, I don't know. You could probably live off of them if you had to. You know, in like Cozumel, Mexico, there are amazing cave systems that so in like the Yucatan Peninsula there aren't any rivers all they have I can't think what they call them but basically there's like big open holes that go down into these massive cave systems that feed out eventually into the Gulf of Mexico and that's like how the ancient were they the Mayans in the Yucatan not the Aztecs I believe they're Mayans but that's like the only place they got their water so I think, you know, it depends. You obviously need some sunlight, but I also know like some of those chambers they found have like tons of skeletons. And it seems like a thousand years ago, the water level for whatever reason in that cave wasn't as high. So it was actually a place that you could go down into. Hmm. They think that they were doing religious ceremonies in these places and that they were like holy spots, which makes hmm. sense if it's the only place you can get your water. I think that's another area that's just, they're really hard to explore. Especially yeah, they're underwater and they're dangerous. So it's another area that's just, I think we've kind of scraped the tip of the iceberg. There's one really interesting one in like Oman. Have you ever heard of this thing? It's called, no. it's either in Oman or Yemen. And it's just this massive hole essentially in the Arabian Peninsula that goes down into like this really interesting cave system. But yeah, they're everywhere, man. That's why they're so interesting to me. And like each has their own little story. And a lot of times, uh, you're not necessarily people now aren't the first ones that have been in them. And I'm sure they've got their own untold secrets. 
And it's funny too, when you talk about how I totally agree that there's just so many secrets in these caves that we just don't even, you know, aren't scratching the surface on. And I think as a lot of people think about like archaeology, for whatever reason, we just have this conception that we've dug up all the secrets and that these archaeological projects just like have been done exhaustively and deep enough everywhere. When in reality, it's like, think how big the earth is, like how deep you need to go to find a lot of these secrets. Like it's just, it's just so it's again, I think arrogant to just think that based on the very limited things that we have dug up from archeology, span that we have some real practical sense of what's happened in our history's past, given logically so much more has had to have been lost than has survived. I, yeah, like I said, tip of the iceberg. I don't even think we've begun. Like how old's the practice of archaeology, really? <laughs> a couple hundred years, right? It's going to take, you can't even put a number on it, how long it would take to really think how, how far archaeology has even come in the past 150 years versus where we'll be in another hundred. It's hard to wrap your brain around. There's a lot of ground to cover. A lot of it, you know, happens by mistake. So there's an element of luck involved just because there's a lot of land out there and people have been living on it for a long time. It's funny you say that too. I, one of the things that Graham Hancock highlights in his most recent book around that the story of when people first populated the Americas could be totally wrong was this discovery of, of cave tools in San Diego from like 50,000 years ago, something that just completely changes the paradigm of the story of when humans populated North America. But anyway, I think that that site, I'm pretty sure was only discovered because they were like drilling a new highway on the coast or something. It's just total luck of the draw. Of course. It's like the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were found because some kid threw a rock into a cave and he heard pottery break. Huh. That's how they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. Yeah, it, there's a huge element of luck to it. Because a lot of these places are in places that may not be like hospitable anymore. Yeah. Right? But they were when things were different. I think the, the element of luck is maybe the, the biggest piece in helping locate some of that stuff outside of advances in technology that allow you to see what your eyes can't. When you talk about luck, are you open to the possibility that it could be synchronicity and part of some higher intelligence helping to guide us? Like I said at the beginning, I think it's stupid to say absolutely not to anything. I wouldn't rule anything out. How do you see that working? You know, I don't know. It's a good question. I, I don't want to try to like <laughs> speculate on that per se, but I just think it is interesting. Like you bring up the Dead Sea Scrolls that that happened right after the Nag Hammadi library was found, which had profound implications on the history of Christianity, both of which happened right after the end of world war two and the first use of nuclear bombs. Like there does seem to be, it's interesting that all these very profound events happened in such a short time frame. Roswell also is, I think, 1947. Like, mm-hmm. like to your point earlier, I don't rule it out. I'd love to hear more about this, those coincidences. That'd be an interesting study in itself. Because the way that I've... People chalk things off to coincidence, but maybe you're thinking about it 
in the wrong way that like the reason that everyone has all these profound coincidences is because they're not coincidences at all, that it's all just part of a much more complicated enfolded structure that we're just not able to recognize. Yeah. What's the saying about like hard work and luck? Oh yeah. It's like Like the harder I work, the luckier I get. There's something there too, right? Like, and that's so true. Yeah, there's there's these strange occurrences, but it it does seem that way. Like 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 you actually the more you grind on something, every once in a while something seems to pay you back, which is kind of in the same vein that you were getting at, just in a different application. Totally agree, and it it makes me think of this concept of manifestation, which like I know makes a lot of people want to roll their eyes, and it's like, how much of that is just being focused, being goal-driven, being hardworking, working on self-improvement that lets you achieve your goals versus how much of it is also an element of you manifest the things that are done with good intention and love in your heart and that the divine response to that, right? It's, it's hard to know where that line is drawn. Yeah. Or like in athletics, a lot of athletes do is they visualize the success that they want to have. If you're Evan McPherson for the Bengals, he practices and visualizes himself hitting a game-winning kick. And a lot of athletes do that in different situations and find that if they take that visualization practice, usually they can help manifest it when given the opportunity. So whether or not that's the universe at play or if that's just how your brain works in some funky place that we don't quite understand, I don't know. It all ties back, and there's just another example of it. Maybe it does have an impact. There's a lot of what ifs, but there's also a lot of interesting similarities and parallels there. And so, as you mentioned, the Bengals, as we chat, we're a few days before the AFC championship playoff game, which I know we're both so excited about. Would love to get your thoughts on what this this team has meant for you as a Bengals fan and for the city of Cincinnati this year. I mean, 33 years since we made an AFC championship game. I'm 32 years old, 31 years since we won a playoff game. I think I'm probably not alone in feeling like, what the hell is actually happening right now? (laughs) All of that shit we've had to deal with. Just so much anxiety and like heartbreak around this whole franchise. I feel like it's almost too good to be true, but I'm also like, you know, cautiously optimistic on, on what it could be. I didn't think they'd get this far. I don't think anybody did. They never cease to amaze. And uh, it's the most exciting time in my lifetime for any kind of Cincinnati sports franchise. So uh, it's special, man. If they win and go to the Super Bowl, I don't even know what to say about that. That would be amazing. amazing. That would be manifesting. That would be manifesting success. Kind of in the, the tangent we were just in, like Joe Burrow. Like, isn't there something also interesting about like sports teams when they actually believe in themselves and visualize themselves getting to a place they can get there? There's something about that, man. They definitely believe in themselves and it's gotten them further than they've been in three decades. Whatever that's attributed to, I'm on board with. I'm on board too. Um, <laughs> Who <that is? laughs> Well, John, this has been awesome. One more topic before we break. I would love to get your thoughts on uh, animal intelligence. I'm wearing a shirt 
that my parents got me in Sitka, Alaska at a bar called Beak right now. It's a massive octopus. Complete coincidence that we're talking about animal intelligence, but I think they're one of the most fascinating examples. I think they're a lot smarter than we think, and I think a lot of animals are. I think they experience the world in a way very similar to ourselves. The ones that are scary are the ones like dolphins or whales or ones that have like as big or larger of brains and also like the, the regions of the brain that like include like thought and emotion are bigger or as big as ours. Do you ever think there will be a time where you can like literally, like I know right now they have those toys that your dog can step on certain things and you can quote unquote talk to the dog. Hmm. Do you ever think there will be a time where we can actually do like neurolinking with animals to have wow. somewhat intelligible conversations? I don't see any reason why not. How cool would that be? It's wild, man. Fucking crazy. That would be fascinating. Yeah. That would be fascinating. But like if, if so Elon Musk has this neural link that I think they're going to start like testing this year or next, right? Have you read anything about that? I know of the company, but I don't know the specifics. That's crazy. I didn't realize they're like that far along. So I believe with Neuralink, you'd be able to like talk with your mind to either a device or a person. That's my understanding. So yeah, I think uh, maybe that trajectory would tell us a lot more about animal intelligence. But I think in a general sense, they're not stupid. You know, I don't think they're. I think they're a little bit more intelligent than we give them credit for. What if that comet had never hit and wiped out the dinosaurs? Like, do you think that some type of dinosaur species would have eventually evolved to have sapience and develop technology and like rule the earth? The dinosaurs? I'm just saying more so in the sense that like, because people credit the dinosaurs getting wiped out, which then enabled the mammals to, you know, eventually grow and thrive. And so like, if that hadn't happened, what do you think would have happened? Or could have happened, I guess. It might have been harder for Homo sapiens to come about. We would have had some more creatures to contend with. It certainly would have had an impact. I don't think you could say it wouldn't. What that impact would have been, hard to speculate on. I guess my my Um, point, Don, was like, do you think that there is a a scenario where human-level sentience evolves not from primates, but from like some other species i don't see any reason why they why it couldn't we're mm-hmm. kind of this weird happening in nature again i think it's silly to say that it couldn't in any other sense i think that's arrogant how that looks and works beyond me but i certainly wouldn't rule it out you mentioned green men yeah <laughs> there you go. Maybe that that's seriously. why it's reptile scales. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. Octopi. What about octopi? Yes. Yeah, just going to say, what about octopi in particular? Do you find so fascinating? Have you heard the thing where like, it was some experiment, no, no, some like scientists or whatever had an octopus in a tank and he had like a fish tank also. And he noticed that his fish started just like disappearing so he put the camera up and what was happening was in the middle of the night when no one was like watching it, the octopus would climb out of its tank, crawl across the floor, climb into the fish tank, eat a fish, then return to its tank. <laughs> it's crazy. 
And just think of like the, the awareness that it has that a, there's someone else keeping me captive that I don't want to catch me. B get knows All right. The light is how that creature sees when it's dark. That's when I go. Then it knows that its food is over there and then it can actually acknowledge that and then problem solve how to get in and out and like outsmart you. It's like a baby, you know, like how like kids will do things when you're not watching. And these are slimy little creatures that we, you know, would look at and say, I think that, you know, that's just a blob of gelatin. But the fact that it's that intelligent, the sea creatures are like the most bizarre to me. Who knows what they're capable of? Totally. It was in a different world. So bizarre. And that's to my question earlier about like, if, you know, primates didn't exist or whatever, like that's kind of what I'm almost getting at is like, if humans were to be wiped out, like, would you eventually see dolphins or octopi or something like evolve and develop cities and civilizations? Like, (laughs) I don't know, like as crazy as that sounds, it doesn't seem impossible. I think they need the opposable thumb is important. Grab things. I I don't know. I mean, you you say that, but that's just because we've evolved with those, right? Like, I'm sure there's other, there's a million ways to skin a cat or whatever phrases. Maybe they have like a opposable uh, beaks in their mouth that they can do things with. I don't know. Yeah, I guess you're right. Can't rule anything out. That's for sure. How that would look, that'd make a good movie. That would make a good movie. We should make that. <laughs> Well, with that, John, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. This was a blast. Love to have you back on sometime. Absolutely. Just send me an invitation and, and we'll hop back on and, and go down some more wormholes. Love Maybe it, dude. Literally. <laughs> Maybe literally. We'll go to uh, we'll wait up Camp Mammoth Cave and go find some holes. I love it. I love it. All right, man. Have a great rest of the afternoon. Yeah. Thanks for having me on, Jordan. Absolutely, brother. Thanks everyone for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. I wanted to dive further into the topic of coincidences and whether they're just outcomes of the randomness of this universe, or whether they could in fact represent something more. One concept I've been exploring recently is Carl Jung's idea of synchronicity. Jung started his career working with Sigmund Freud and is now known as one of the most important scientists in the foundations of psychoanalysis. Synchronicity was used by Jung to describe circumstances that appear meaningfully related yet lack a causal connection. In other words, it's an important coincidence that can't be explained by a traditional cause and effect relationship. Rather, it is a non-causal event in the external world, which coincides with things going on in the internal world, such as our thoughts, feelings, and dreams. One of the fundamental ideas of the unified field of consciousness which I've come to accept as personal truth, is that we live in a world of infinite possibilities. To me, this indicates that we all have unfolded within us infinite implicate states, and how we choose to interpret these synchronistic events impacts which of these implicate states we manifest explicitly. Said another way, both free will and determinism are fundamental principles of this universe and it's up to us to decide how beautiful or terrible we make the explicate world. 
I know this theory is abstract, and so I'll include on the Instagram page a mental model used by David Baum in the holographic universe theory to explain how order can be either manifest, explicit, or hidden, implicit. This idea of both explicate and implicate structures of the universe is consistent with the ideas of chaos theory. Chaos theory is the study of apparently random or unpredictable behavior in systems governed by deterministic laws. Chaos theory states that within the apparent randomness of chaotic, complex systems, there are underlying patterns, interconnectedness, constant feedback loops, repetition, self-similarity, fractals, and self-organization. The butterfly effect, an underlying principle of chaos, describes how a small change in one state of a deterministic, nonlinear system can result in large differences in a later state, meaning that there is sensitive dependence on initial conditions. A metaphor for this behavior is that a butterfly flapping its wings in Brazil can cause a tornado in Texas. So as we think logically about the structure of the universe, we know that nothing happens in a vacuum. And that a seemingly trivial decision you make today could have trickle-down effects on someone five generations in the future on the other side of the planet. Could it then also be the case that these seemingly coincidental events are in fact our consciousness recognizing synchronicity and sensing the order in an implicate state that has the potential to be made manifest? I believe this to be the case. But then how do you know which of these signs to follow? I can tell you from personal experience that once you start looking for and believing in synchronicity, you'll discover them everywhere which is exciting, but it can also be incredibly confusing. And so when I get into this type of situation, I just try to remember the advice of Ram Das, who said, the next message is where you are when you hear the next message. Whenever you're ready, you'll hear the next message. The interesting thing is there's always a next message and it's always available to you. Now, that's a hard one. The handwriting is always on the wall saying, always there. Question is, can you see it? I'm done with bullshit. At this point, I'm merely amused. 22, checking in, it's like a yearly review. I ain't making no commitments unless I'm seeing it through. And that shit ain't always easy to do. Nah, it ain't easy to another year alive. Pushing my dreams, finding balance while I'm looking at screens. I look out for the team, caretaker, never doubt the regime. I built a following off loyalty without a machine. Make my coffee, throw a beat on. Go get what I'm owed, and that's just something we agreed on. They said it wouldn't be long, that's besides the point. I'm finally feeling like I belong. Just being me, that's the type of shit that we on. I'm sick of stressing about these numbers, man, they tire me out. Thinking I need a required amount to be happy. Stupid ass, it's like chasing a high. I'll never reach, kiss the happiness and wave a goodbye. While I'm scrolling on the internet comparing myself. It ain't right, but being aware of it helps. I gotta put my phone on D&D. Having conversations, it's just me and me. List of thoughts are piling like lines are at the DMV. Everything is handled, please, one at a time. Take a break, No, I'm here for the ride. Now let it slide. Slide, slide, let it slide. 
been putting out these hits, motherfucker. Who you think that I am? It's Mr. Always Overcome when on the brink of a jam. I'll be damned if I don't ever have the power to thrive. I ain't waiting till my flowers arrive. I'll pat my own back. They said it's not the way I took it head on. I ain't go back. Document the journey, check the catalog and codecs. Pictures worth a thousand words. Wrote at least a thousand words. Multiply that shit by thousands. I've been losing counter words. If we talking about a verse, I could keep it round for round. I put it down, just found a hearse. Ain't a day I'm out of work. I could put a clinic on. That's just to show you how it works. Master on my craft. Now take a seat and watch the crowd observe. Word.